Please open your Bibles to Romans chapter 8. We're going to be reading verses 18 through 25 today. These verses point us to a very important truth. The truth is this, that life is filled with suffering, but for Christians there are better things in store in the future. That we experience present suffering, but it points us to the reality that we will experience future glory. So please stand with me to read God's word. Just as Jesus rescues us from sin's power and penalty, Jesus one day will rescue Christians from sin's presence. Jesus is going to take his people to be with him forever, and that is the hope of every Christian. Today we are considering this idea of present suffering and future glory, and really for the past four weeks we've been seeing details in Matthew chapter 24, such as Christ's return and the signs of Christ's return and the Antichrist and tribulation. And in light of those things we've been seeing, how should we live in light of Christ's return? How should we live in the last days? Well, today what we're going to see is what God has given believers in order to live most appropriately before his return. So Romans chapter 8, beginning at verse 18. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to decay and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Lord God, we thank you for your word and we pray, Lord, that you would be our teacher, that you would reveal to us what you would have us know today. We pray in Christ's name, amen. Today is Mother's Day. Let's state the obvious. You knew that. You're dressed up for Mother's Day. Some of you men are dressed up especially nice for your ladies. But let me just say, for some people, Mother's Day is a very joyful day. At the same time, for some people, it is a very painful day. It is a day of general sadness. I like the way Jim Elliott put it. Mother's Day is a day set aside to honor those for whom Children's Day comes 365 days a year. Some people call it a day to comfort the moms as we gear up to hammer the dads on Father's Day. I want it to be a day where we find our our deepest satisfaction in Christ while we thank those God has given to us as moms. We thank God for the moms He gave us. Some of you, your mom passed away this year. 
Others of you, you say, you know, I, we don't have any moms in our immediate family left because they passed away. Other families have four generations of moms. I'll tell you this about Mother's Day. It is a tough day to preach. Here's the deal with that. You want to honor moms, but the Bible isn't all about moms. The Bible honors moms. The Bible lifts up motherhood. But there are several ways you can go about preaching on Mother's Day. You can take the easy road and just pick a passage about motherhood. You know, roles and relationships and responses to moms. You can do that. I'm not doing that today. Now, what you can also do is you can ignore Mother's Day altogether and just give out flowers at the end. I tried that once. It doesn't work. Or you can do this. You can choose a passage of Scripture that has some mom-specific terminology in it that points to eternal truths. That's what we're going to do today. Today, instead of telling moms what they should do or talk about what moms have done or how we should treat them, we are going to focus primarily on what Jesus has done and what Jesus is going to do. What kind of difference that makes for all of us, including moms. Of course, there will be applications for moms, and there will be applications for those who need to respond well to moms. This is a passage of Scripture that has some mom-specific terminology. Childbirth, adoption, sons, children. And these words are applying to a Christian standing with Christ and suffering with Christ. This passage speaks of suffering. I know that's not the most cheery and uplifting message on Mother's Day. But it is in light of future blessing. That's something moms and all of us can relate to. One thing I I believe with all my heart. Whenever we focus on gospel truths, we become better equipped to fulfill the callings that God has put on our life. When we focus on Jesus, we focus on deep gospel truth, we are are more ready to fulfill really with gusto the calling that God has placed on our life. Let me tell you where we're going to go today. First, what we're going to do is talk about pain. We're going to talk about suffering. Now, that is a part of life. So we're going to basically say, here's what we're experiencing now, suffering. Then we're going to talk about glory. Now, glory is what Christians have to look forward to. So we're going to talk about what we're going through now in terms of suffering, but also we're going to talk about what we're going to experience in terms of glory. And lastly, we're going to say, well, how do we live now in light of that? How do we live now in the midst of suffering in the light of future glory? That's where we're going. Let's talk about pain. Now, it doesn't take a brain surgeon to figure out that life is painful and that pain is a part of life. Just in this passage, verse 20, futility verse 21 bondage to decay verse 22 groaning together verse 23 groan inwardly so let's just admit some painful realities before we celebrate the glorious ones pain is a part of life moms suffer non-moms suffer everyone suffers i'm not a mom let me state the obvious no one knows pain and suffering like moms do And not just because of the pain of childbirth. Some of you have gone through that pain recently. You know what I'm talking about because I don't. But not just because of the pain of childbirth, but every time a Boston or a Benghazi happens, moms 
weep. Moms grieve. A mother's pain is a silent pain. It's a fracture that no one sees. It's like a scar with no invisible marks. Internal injuries have been sustained. And those injuries happen because of things like wayward children that won't listen to their mother's instruction. A lot of times on Mother's Day, we think of those who haven't been able to have kids or didn't have the opportunity. I think about pain that comes when childless women are treated insensitively or when they're treated in a judgmental way or ridiculed or even mocked. You see it in the Bible and you see it today. There is sinful cruelty, there is selfish indifference, and it's a byproduct of the fall. Weak, immature people do all sorts of mischief that isn't good. I've learned through life that hurt people hurt people. People that are hurting inflict pain on others. And it's pain because of the fall, and it will happen. It's just the way life is. Pain is a part of life. It reminds me of times of deep emotional pain in my life, of either rejection or of being picked on. It reminds me of physical pain that I've experienced. I think you've all heard my story probably several times of when I was in high school and I got tripped in a big track race. I was running the half mile and out of that experience, I got 17 stitches and a pair of crutches and a story to tell. When I was 42, back in 2004, I couldn't sleep one night. I had a sharp pain under my rib cage. Thought I was dying. I was nauseous. I was in pain. I went to the emergency room. Sat there for two hours because I wasn't dying. Drove myself to another hospital. By six in the morning, they diagnosed what you already know. I needed an emergency appendectomy. They yanked my appendix out, and I got out of that experience a two-inch scar and a story to tell. That was pretty much the extent of the glory. But here, Paul, in Romans chapter 8.18, says, The sufferings of this present time are not worthy to compare to the glory that will be revealed. He's saying there's going to be pain and suffering, but you can't even compare it to the glory that awaits Christians. He's saying that we will not just survive, but those who are in Christ will thrive. I think of James. Go with me to James chapter 1. James talks about suffering. In fact, it doesn't take him long. He gets to verse 2 and he says, Consider it all joy, my brothers, when you encounter various trials. You know that the testing of your faith produces endurance, steadfastness. And let it have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete. Basically, that you may become mature. He tells him, if you lack wisdom, ask God. He's going to give it to you. And then over in verse 16, the same chapter, in the same context, he says, don't be deceived, my beloved brothers. Verse 17, every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights. And what he is saying is that the trial and the pain and the suffering that you're experiencing as a Christian is from God, and it's a gift. It's a gift in his sovereign goodness to provide something lacking in your life. And his purpose is to lead you to that good result that he has in mind. 
So he's saying, don't blame God. His word will navigate you safely through the trial. Be doers of the word, not merely hearers who delude themselves. So here's James, much like Paul, writing to a group of people who were forced into difficult situations and circumstances. Much like you find yourself in today. And they're finding it hard going. Just like we do today. And he's pointing to them of how do you live in Christ? That's what Paul's doing too. Suffering is a good gift from God to provide what you're lacking in terms of character. What we're experiencing now is, is obvious to see. We're experiencing suffering, pain, misery, frustration, seeming futility. But here's what we'll experience in the future. Let's talk about glory. We know all about present suffering, but what does future glory mean? Paul says I, the, that the sufferings of this present age are not worthy to be compared to the glory. Future glory, you've got to think of that idea of glory. Glory is one of those words that's like a greased pig. It's hard to get a hold of. It's, it's like hugging a whale. It's hard to understand. When we talk about the glory of God, we are talking about God's reputation, His high position, His excellence, His greatness. That's what we talk about when we're talking about God's glory. The, the word for glory, the Greek word that Paul uses here is doxa, which, which back then was often applied to people. It was focused actually on the opinion of other people. It expresses the value that people put on others because of what they do, what they accomplish. The Greeks' highest goal was to be honored and praised by men, to receive glory from men. Now, God absolutely transforms this idea in the Bible. Glory as mere human opinion was radically transformed into glory as the majesty associated with God's revelation of himself to mankind. So when the Bible speaks of glory, it, it's, it's forever because it's pointed towards God. And it is, it is forever while suffering is temporary. That's why it can't be compared. Now Paul never minimizes or downplays the severity or the significance of Christian suffering in the world. He had a heart for the suffering. But the glory of God, the glory laid up for Christians in the future far outweighs the suffering. In fact, the word for glory comes from a word meaning weighty and heavy, significant. It's the majesty of God's presence. So when, we talk, when, when Paul talks about the glory that will be revealed, he is referring to the final state of a believer when we will have been transformed into the image of God's Son. Romans 8, 29 says that, that God is in process of conforming us to the image of his son. Now, Jesus has already entered into this state of glory. Philippians 3.21, Philippians 3.20 says, our citizenship is in heaven from which we eagerly await a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the body, our lowly body, to, to be like his glorious body by the power that he has even to subject all things to himself. Colossians 3.4 tells us that when Christ, who is our life, appears, you will also appear with him in glory. So it's the, 
It's the final state of a believer. It is a future transformation that will reveal our share in the glory, our part in the glory. But here's the thing. Christians have to wait for the glory. Christians have to wait until God's work is completed. And we are not good at waiting. We do not like to wait. We want it now. Key words in this passage besides glory are wait eagerly. Verse 19, verse 23, verse 25. Waiting eagerly. And hope. Verse 20, 24, and 25. How do we live now in light of future glory? We know we have suffering. We know glory is is laid up for us. But how do you live in light of that? First, you need to understand what Paul was getting at when he wrote Romans. One of the biggest things we know about Romans is that Paul wrote to clarify and to explain the gospel. That's really obvious. But there were two other reasons you might not realize about why he wrote. One was very, very practical, very daily. He was writing to them because he wanted to visit them, and so he was planning to visit them, and so he wanted them to pray and look forward to that visit. But the other reason is that there were Jews and Gentiles in probably the churches that had sprung up in Rome, not just one church. He, he writes to the saints in Rome, and he's writing to them to be unified as Jew and Gentile brothers and sisters now. It's a very foreign idea to them. And by the way, there's really four sections that I see in, in Romans, verses, uh, chapters 1 through 4, the gospel and the righteousness of God by faith. Chapters 5 through 8, the gospel and the power of God for salvation. Chapters 9 through 11, the gospel and God's purposes for his people. And then chapters 12 through 16, the gospel and the transformed life in Christ. We're in today near the end of the second section. This section on the gospel and, and the power of God for salvation. But the passage we're in today is really about assurance of eternal life by God's spirit for Christians. So, let's talk about what we've been given in Christ that helps us in in the midst of present-day suffering in light of future glory. Three things I will point out to you. Presently in Christ, what God has given us. Number one, what God has given us is faith in the future tense. Faith in the future tense. Another way to put that is the future tense of faith. Another way to put that is hope. Hope. Look at verse 24. Paul says, For in this hope we are saved, for hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? So Paul is contrasting sight and hope. Elsewhere he contrasts faith and sight. We walk by faith, not by sight. But how is hope faith in the future tense how is hope the future tense of faith think about hope for me for a moment hope is a desire for something good in the future we we use that word a lot a child might say i really hope that daddy comes home early from work today so that i can play catch with him in the yard the child does not know if it's certain or not in fact there's a lot of uncertainty to it i really hope but I don't really know for sure if daddy's going to come home early so I can play with him in the yard. We might say our only hope 
of getting there is if there's no traffic. But we don't know for sure if there will be traffic or not. It's not a certainty. Or someone might say, look, I really hope this works out, but it looks like it's not going to. A lot of uncertainty in the way that we use the word hope. But the meaning of, God, of hope in God's word is, is really the opposite of how we usually use the term. Again, we use the term hope and we express uncertainty rather than certainty. That's not the biblical meaning of hope. Biblical hope is not just a desire for something good in the future. It is a confident expectation and desire for something good in the future. Biblical hope not only desires something good, it expects it to happen based upon God's faithfulness and God's word. And it not only expects it to happen, it's confident that it will happen. What's the connection between faith and hope? Picture an umbrella idea. Faith is the umbrella idea. It's the larger idea and hope fits underneath it as a necessary part of biblical faith. Hope is the part of faith that focuses on the future. Biblically, think about this. When faith is directed to the future, you can actually call it hope. Why? Why is faith the bigger term? Because faith can focus on the past and the present, while hope can only focus on the future. In fact, uh, Hebrews 11.3 says, By faith we understand that the world was created by the word of God. So faith can look back to creation as well as forward. It includes hope, but it's more than hope. Faith is our confidence in the word of God, and whenever the word of God has reference to the future, you can call that confidence hope. So hope is faith in the future tense. But that's really tough for us to have. What a lot of Christians do is they fall into the hope in the uncertain sense, so it's the unbiblical definition of hope. God wants us to have the biblical working definition of hope. It's really tough for us, though. We have conflict even within our own hearts regarding this. Richard Sibbs was an old Puritan preacher in Cambridge. He died in 1635. He wrote wrote a whole book on hope. He wrote a whole book on Psalm 42, verse 5. The book was called The Soul's Conflict with Itself. In Psalm 42, 5, it's exactly what you have. The soul arguing with itself and then preaching to itself. Here's the verse. Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you disquieted within me? Hope in God. See, hoping in God does not come naturally for us. We have to preach it to ourselves very strongly so we don't find ourselves in the low road of, of being downcast and discouraged. See, I've found many people who, who are, are happy to be in, in, on the low road of using an unbiblical idea of hope. And then what happens is they start telling themselves lies and untruths. They say, I'm a failure. I'm no good. I'm a victim. Someone else is to blame for my circumstances. This, there is no hope. You ever hear Christians say there's no hope? The best sermon you preach to yourself today may have three words. Hope in God. 
hope in God. A certainty based on the faithfulness of God, based on the word of God. I love the way the psalmists wrestle and, and really struggle to maintain their hope in God. You read the Psalms and he's just always working through it. That's the normal Christian experience. If you time, sometimes struggle with, with using a biblical definition of hope, you're normal. Romans 8.25 says, If we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. We wait for it with perseverance. So the first thing God gives us as we live now in, in, in present suffering in light of future glory is hope. It's faith in the future tense. The second thing God gives us is a foretaste of things to come. A foretaste of things to come. Verse 21 says, The creation itself will be set free from its bondage to decay and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. Bondage to decay. What a scary gross decomposing term corruption ruin the 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 greco-roman world in which paul lived dreaded corruption and decay people back then believed that decay and fate reigned supreme paul says the temporary futility is only bearable in light of the future glory people who aren't christians they truly live with no hope because there's no there's no future glory it's just whatever you can figure out here under the sun what is this foretaste of things to come it's the holy spirit indwelling believers look at verse 22 We know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. Verse 23, and not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit. We groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our body. There's a lot packed into those verses. But if you think about this terminology of freedom from slavery and, and being God's children and, and, and experiencing glory, what you see is a reference to the Old Testament Exodus. In Exodus, God's people sighed and groaned under the hardship and it was, their groaning was heard by God as, as a prayer, really, that hastened God's re- rescue of them. The whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. The pain is immense, the pain is intense, but it is going to lead to glory. That's what the pain of childbirth leads to, to life. And he says, we ourselves, we have the first fruits of the Spirit. We have a, a sampling, but we don't have the full, the full of what has been guaranteed, but we are now groaning inwardly, even though we're waiting eagerly, our adoption as sons. Earlier in this chapter, he's talking about our adoption into God's family, our adoption as sons. But here he is speaking of our adoption as something that isn't all the way concluded yet because there is also the idea of the redemption of our body. So you've got first fruits of the Spirit, the redemption of the body. What do these things mean? Let's look first at what is the first fruits of the Spirit referring to. 
What does that mean? Well, it, it refers to the idea of a down payment, a guarantee, a pledge of final redemption, which makes you long for it even more. It's like getting a sample at Costco or Trader Joe's. You want more of what they gave you. It's delicious, and you want a larger portion. So, so the foretaste is a hope-realized sample, basically. God's giving you a sample of what you're going to have for eternity. But you've got present suffering going on as a believer, and you've got the indwelling Holy Spirit in you, but sometimes you're walking by the flesh, and sometimes you're walking by the Spirit. So you're groaning inwardly because you're awaiting eagerly freedom. So you have this down payment, this final pledge, and, and it's a guarantee. That's the first fruits of the Spirit. What's the redemption of our body? That's the future aspect of our present reality of being adopted by God. That's when it all comes together. Right now, God hears our cries. And as a result, what Romans 8, 26 happens, the, the Spirit intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. We don't know how to pray as we ought, but the Spirit intercedes for us. So we have this foretaste of things to come. Christians are called to walk by the Spirit, not by the flesh. We're supposed to have a growing freedom now a, and then the full freedom then. But a lot of Christians aren't walking in victory. They're walking in defeat. They've got the first fruits of the Spirit. They've got the Spirit indwelling them, but they're not experiencing freedom. Look at the very first part of this chapter, Romans 8. Look at verse 4. We walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. Verse 6, to set the mind on the things of the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the, on the Spirit is life and peace. Those who are in the flesh can't even please God. Then he says, you, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Even says that the Spirit bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. We're supposed to walk by the Spirit. We're supposed to experience freedom. But I have found so many Christians who are just not content in life. Why would it be that Christians can't be content? I think it's because they don't know the secret. Do you know the secret? The secret that Paul talks about in Philippians chapter 4? Go there with me. Philippians chapter 4. He, he had all sorts of troubles, Paul did, as a believer. All sorts of persecutions and tribulations and, and mistreatments. And he learned something. He says in verse 11 of Philippians 4, Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am in to be content. I know how to be brought low. He's, he's saying, I know how to go through suffering. And he's saying, I know how to abound in any and every circumstance. I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. And that secret is very simple, but seemingly the most elusive to a lot of Christians. 
The secret is in trusting Jesus. Verse 13, Paul says, I can do all things through Him who strengthens me. I can do all things through Christ. So you can cry out to God as you groan inwardly and wait eagerly for your adoption as sons, the redemption of your body. You've got the first fruits of the Spirit. You can walk by that Spirit. What God has given us as we're living now in the midst of suffering is a foretaste of things to come. Your best day of walking in the Spirit of God is but a foretaste of what you will have forever with Jesus in eternity. The third thing I want to point out to you today is the family of God. That's what God has given us as we live in suffering now in light of future glory. You might say, well, where in this passage do you see the family of God? Well, I see it in verse 23 and other places where Paul has a we orientation versus a me orientation. We are so wired in America to be so self-oriented and and self-directed and and introspective and think it's all about my relationship with Jesus and forget that we belong to a family the family of God the idea is you've got help you're not going alone there's solidarity in Christ there's a sense that we are in this together because we are There's this plural aspect. We ourselves. Paul says, me and all the rest of my brothers and sisters in Christ, we are the ones that are groaning inwardly. We are the ones who have the first fruits of the Spirit. We are the ones who will receive the adoption as sons fully at the redemption of our body. He's pointing to the family of God. Every Christian needs mentors. Every Christian needs friends. Every Christian needs the body of Christ in their life pointing each other to Jesus what if your response to you've got help is no I don't you feel all alone you feel underappreciated you feel taken advantage of you feel used remember this if you're a Christian you can take heart in the fact that it is the Lord Christ whom you serve what Colossians 3 tells us and that as you willingly spend and are spent for the souls of others you have hope in Christ for the future and that your picture here might not get better it may it can but it might not a lot of people will say there's just no one available for me I know the feeling, I've heard it, I, I've felt it, I, I, know, I know what you're talking about. I have heard older people and younger people alike expect similar sentiments. Sometimes it goes like this. Younger people will say, how come older people in the body aren't coming alongside to mentor me? And older people will say, how come the younger ones aren't seeking me out for all the wisdom I've gained from making all my mistakes? And, and there's a problem there. And what I've found is it's because each is waiting for the other to initiate. Because we're not that good of initiators sometimes. And Titus 2 talks about the older men teaching the younger men and the older women teaching the younger women. But it doesn't say how they're to get connected. 
It doesn't necessarily give the recipe for how that multi-generational interaction is going to, to actually come about. So there's Christians all over the place waiting for someone to knock on their door or to give them a call or to ask them. What I have found, and I've seen it at Grace, is that when someone asks for or invites a multi-generational interaction, it happens. You got to set the table for it. You got to expect it. You got to go after it. It takes someone older or younger taking initiative. What I like to say is to the to the older ones in the faith, say, "You go find someone to to teach and to mentor and to share your life with." And and I like to say to younger ones in the faith, "You go find someone who can teach you and mentor you and share their life with you, because it is a mutual encouragement in the family of God." You look around this room. You look around this church. We are the family of God together. Sure, there's some unbelievers sprinkled among us and we want the unbelievers to come to faith in Christ so they can be our brother and sister too. But brothers and sisters are committed to each other and they are interacting with each other and they're sharing not only the gospel but their very lives. Why? Because we're dear to each other. Because we, we love each other. When I think about present suffering, I think about singing the blues. I, I, seriously, we basically sing the blues now with confident expectation of a glorious future. David did that. When David was writing psalms, he was singing the blues with a confident expectation of a good future from God. That's what Lamentations is all about. They're, he's singing the blues and saying, but I'm going to hope in God. Slaves in America did it through, through their songs, through spirituals. Blues and country singers do it too. I love this song, the words of this song. Here's how it goes. When I cross over, I will shout and sing. I will know my Savior by the mark where the nails have been. Well, there's been pain. On Calvary's mountain where they made him suffer so, all my sin was paid for a long, long time ago. I will know my Savior when I come to him by the marks where the nails have been. Moms, women in general, sing the blues too, but in their own unique way. Now, I've made all the mistakes... I live with five women, with Angela, my wife, and my four daughters, and they've let me know, and other people have let me know, you just don't understand because you're not in this club. But let me say, the pain of a woman who wanted to be a mom but couldn't, or the pain of a woman who didn't have opportunity, or a pain of a woman who buried her children, or the pain of a woman whose children are running headlong to hell, head first, running as fast as they can away from the faith is a pain that only those suffering it know. And the family of God needs to bear that burden. If any of those things describe you, let me remind you, as a Christian, where your true significance lies. The Bible tells us that Jesus is our sufficiency. 
The Bible tells us that Jesus is our adequacy. We are not adequate in and of ourselves. It's one of the reasons why we need the body of Christ so much. A little smattering of uh, pastoral exhortations as it relates to the family of God. If you are someone called to love the hurting, treat others with kindness. Think before you speak. Curb your criticism. Confess your own sins. It's always more juicy to confess someone else's. If you're married, your spouse is the number one person on earth that you should be honoring. I work with too many couples who trash their spouses behind their backs. And if they'll do it with their pastor, they'll do it with a lot of other people. And that's something I cannot, I cannot honor, I cannot respect, and I do not stand for. Don't ever speak against your spouse. There are some glorious truths, by the way, mixed in with the painful reality of suffering on a daily basis. One of those is that someday everyone will receive their true price tag because God's going to give it to them. The devalued will be treasured. One of the things, and I mentioned it already, but that, that about Mother's Day that I think about every year are, are, is the pain of motherhood. Motherhood is so joyful. Motherhood, and, and I, I know this because I'm a dad. But let me just say, there are, there are the, the injuries, there are the pains, there are the, the hidden things that even no one knows that, that you go through. And it's not easy. Let me just talk about those who might feel a little underappreciated today. You go, you know what? It's Mother's Day and they're going to, you know, blah, blah, blah. But tomorrow, Monday, is going to happen and it's, it's going to go back the same way. Because I'm disrespected or I'm not, I'm not appreciated or whatever. And let me just say this to the moms present. I want to thank you for all you do. The moms. People, including your children, and God's word are the only things that last forever. They will exist through eternity. And the role you play as a mom, as a teacher, as, as, and all the other roles you play as a mom is, is of great significance. And it won't always be apparent, but God is weaving something together through the fabric of your family into something unique as you grow in grace together. And growing in grace is messy. Growing in grace is not a perfect picture. You gotta do some photoshopping. Another glorious truth is that God's glory will be all-encompassing when we experience it. And it's gonna be good. It will all be good. We live with a lot of real painful truths. We don't have things we want. Things we've been given, we wonder if we want. But imagine a place where there's no pain. Imagine a place where there's no screaming and yelling. Imagine a place where there's no put-downs. Imagine a place where there's no grudges and no legalism and no license and no hatred and no sin. You have just imagined heaven 
where glory dwells. There's the rest of the story. You can read it in Romans 8. Paul says, if God is for us, who can be against us? That nothing in all of creation can separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And as we live, we're gaining wisdom, we're gaining experience, we're gaining perspective. But can you see God's plan in giving and withholding? Can you see God's blessing in the midst of suffering? God has given us faith in the future tense, hope. He has given us a foretaste of things to come, the Holy Spirit indwelling believers. And he's given us the family of God. You have help. 